Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. This week, after a long, hard winter and spring, it looks like summer's arrived. And after months of being cooped up inside, you may be desperate to get to a cottage, a hiking trail, or a beach. At the risk of being a downer, though, you can't afford to let your guard down, especially as we see businesses and parks reopen while family and friends pressure us to expand our social bubbles, as they call it. We know many of you have been wondering how to navigate the new season during the pandemic. So today we're answering the question, how safe are my favorite summer activities? There's so much to cover. We're going to bring you two episodes. Today we'll cover outdoor activities like sports and dining al fresco. And tomorrow in your feed, you'll find an episode focused on indoor activities like cottaging and visiting hotels and how to handle childcare in the summer when you're not on vacation. I'm lucky to have with me Dr. Lenora Saxinger, an infectious diseases specialist and associate professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Alberta. Hi there, Brian Goldman here. Good Morning, afternoon, morning. Good morning. I guess it is. It's late morning to you. Yes, it is. And yes, uh, yes. and I have no idea whether it's night or day because I worked a night shift last night in the emergency department. <laughs> Welcome to The Dose. Thank you for having me. Let's just start off by talking about the change in the weather. How does the transmission of COVID-19 during summer compare to winter? Well, the short answer is we don't know yet because we haven't had it for a summer yet. But there's been a lot of conjecture about what the summer season might do because some of our other endemic coronaviruses, like the non-severe cold-causing coronaviruses, seem to recede in the summer. And our epidemic, zoonotic, um, scary coronaviruses like SARS, which burnt itself out, and then the MERS um, coronavirus, don't necessarily seem to have that seasonality. And so there's different modeling predicting whether or not we're going to see differences in the summer. And at the moment, I'm not convinced we will because hot places have had big outbreaks of COVID-19. Uh, Brazil is a, is, a, is, a, is a big example of that, isn't it? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think the climate alone doesn't necessarily mean that much. So it's a bit of an open question. I don't think we can rely on the summer necessarily to reduce our transmission in the community, basically. Um, a lot of us are already spending more time outdoors. Can you just talk about how the risk of getting COVID-19 outdoors compares with being indoors? You know, that's been a fairly strong signal from the beginning. Um, and, and what we know about it is kind of based on transmission chain data. So in places where they've tracked um, where people got infected and from whom they got infected, it really looks like 90% or more of the transmissions that we document have been indoors. Now, a couple of things about that. I recently found kind of a cool website at, um, from the Wellcome Trust in the UK where they actually have been um, putting all this data together in an openly available database. And there have been outbreaks in outdoor settings, clearly transmission between running partners. Now, we don't know whether they hung out together in a change room or not. Clearly transmission at construction sites, which are generally outdoors, but we don't know if they had a break area or not. 
Um, but there's enough there that, that I think that we can say outdoors is much less risky, but we can't say there's no risk because the other factors um, are, are basically how close you are to someone and shared objects, high touch objects. Outdoors dilutes viral droplets. It, it basically makes things much less risky and has done that with other diseases too, actually. They're, like TB, we used to treat outdoors a lot. Influenza, so there was some attempt to have outdoor hospitals. So, so outdoors is somewhat protective, but, but I don't think that we should make the jump to say that being outdoors means you can ignore hand hygiene and physical distancing. Okay, so my next question, building on this uh, with a bit of trepidation, um, we have a brand new deck at my place. So how risky is it to invite people over? You know, and I mean, everyone is just hungry for social contact. And and I think that actually it is possible to manage things to reduce risk. And I think that people have different risk tolerance, but we should try to set a floor of like basic principles. And I think some of the basic principles people might consider based on an evolving understanding of the disease is that one to two meter distance. So if your deck is nice and big, you can spread yourself out a lot. And then the other thing that I noticed from looking at outbreak data is that meal sharing is a bit of a potential issue. And that might just be because people are sharing high touch surfaces, like buffets are a disaster Mm. um, with handles being touched and stuff. And so if you give some critical thought to how you're sharing um, foods or refreshments, um, that might actually provide some additional reassurance um, because, you know, if it's family units, maybe people should be meeting for a picnic in the park instead of a shared barbecue where everyone's handling the same stuff and everyone brings their own picnic goods. If you're actually hosting people, um, you would want to have not like don't have common serving bowls, maybe have individualized pre-plated kind of things so that people aren't having to handle and touch the same utensils and dishes and implements. And that seems paranoid, but it also seems easy enough that based on what we know right now, it might provide some additional protection. I think it's not all or nothing. I think you you have to look at what you can do in the in-between space to make life more enjoyable and livable. And, you know, with that, you might also have with your snack packs, have like a hand sanitizer station you might come across like Howard Hughes or something, you know, but, but, but actually I think that some things, you're dating some things, yourself. Yeah, I know I'm, I'm ancient. Um, but some things are, are on the table just to provide that little reminder that we have to be extra careful. People get upset because it seems like we're changing the rules all the time, but what we're doing is we're trying to adapt to what we learn. And so there's going to be learning and adapting for a while. And at some point things that we say right now might sound 100% ridiculous, but that's okay. That means that we're learning. So, well, how many people should I have on my deck? Um, I'm obviously it's going to be based on the size, but we're we're talking about a small gathering, aren't we? It's kind of hard to know what the threshold for risk is, um, but if it's a deck party, I would consider it kind of in the same realm of an indoors gathering. So I'd be saying like six. I mean, the issue is that how, however many households you bring together, you're de facto missing mixing all the members of that household in that time and space. And so rather than saying, hey, I want to have a thing and just so I don't have to do all this prep more than once, I'll have a whole bunch of different people. I think you need to look at the number of household bubbles that you're mixing. Um, You might actually give some thought even to who's in the household. Like if there's a multi-generational household, um, that household has someone at higher risk in it. And so it might change the way you think about that and how many people you want to mix with. So there's, there's a lot of things that you can't make rules around, but I think there's some principles to think about. So who's at risk? 
um, how many people are you kind of blending when you have that gathering because of the size of their households. Um, I think those things actually can make a difference. And and also the duration of time spent is, is a factor, maybe less important outside, but certainly for indoor gatherings, the duration of time is a big risk factor. So less than 15 minutes, we don't usually, at least in the transmission chains, we don't see much um, transmission, but as you add time and shared airspace and more prolonged contact, the risk goes up. So that's another thing to consider when you're planning your sociability. How about wearing masks at that gathering wow, on the on the deck? That one is the most loaded one. I myself, based on current evidence, and obviously people are interpreting the same body of kind of sub-op, very suboptimal evidence wildly differently. So it's creating so much confusion. But my personal read of the current evidence is that I don't think that if you're distancing and you're outside, masks are likely to add much. If you are in closer quarters, at least intermittently inside, it might be worthwhile to consider masks for that setting. I would stick with the dis distancing and hand hygiene and being outside as a reasonable first line of defense. And that's, like I said, a really contentious one. But But I also think that there's some unmeasurable but important aspects to masks um, like eating and drinking means you have to handle them all the time um, and also reading yeah. people's faces and having a conversation and having that interactivity if they're not adding much to the safety of distancing and being outside and hand hygiene I think that they actually do detract from the experience as well so so I always like the first things first and then the masks at the moment are an add-on unless someone shows me some different data Okay, so now you've got the gathering on the deck and somebody says, uh, can I go inside and use your bathroom? Problem. <laughs> I'm just saying that your options there are limited because saying, no, you cannot, does not appear to be a reasonable thing. <laughs> no, yeah. But, um, you know, then you're saying, okay, well, if people are going to be going into the house, they should do so individually and they should practice good hand hygiene. It depends on your degree of paranoia about some things. There was a recent report that you can't actually get viable virus from stool and in infected people. Now, I don't know how, how early that occurs in infection, but could an asymptomatic person, because anyone with any symptoms at all should not be going to interact. So let's start there. But could a completely asymptomatic person um, aerosolize um, virus from feces in your bathroom by flushing the toilet? If we said what would be the worst case scenario, I think that would be it. And I actually really don't think that that would be a big deal. I think that if people just do the uh, hand hygiene before and after using the toilet and that, you know, after everyone leaves, you clean the high touch surfaces, um, light plates and doorknobs and faucet handles. I think that it's reasonable for them to use the bathroom and it's potentially unreasonable to say no if you've had them over. Unless you what? have a highly treated yard. <laughs> yes. Oh. And you could consider if you're in a public uh, washroom space that allows it, you close the lid when you flush, just in terms of overall aerosol management. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years. Ever since I first covered it, as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favorite podcast app. How about drinks on a restaurant patio with friends? Hmm. It's an important one. 
Um, restaurant patios are outdoors. Hopefully they have good air exchanges and they don't have funny airflows because we have seen restaurant outbreaks where airflow actually directed droplets to people beyond one to two meters. And so there's that, but outdoors that risk should be less. One thing that bugs me is I don't know how many restaurants are set up. They, they like distance between tables, but you can't really distance at a table. So you are bringing together the household bubbles at the table. Not having shared snacks might reduce risk. Hand hygiene might re reduce risk. Um, sitting as far apart from each other as you can might reduce risk. I feel for restaurants who need some customers, but I still think, or you could all just pick up takeout separately and meet in a park. <laughs> so that's on my gradient. And, and ultimately my answer also might depend on where you are. Um, because if your community is, has, has really good testing and really low rates, then, then I think it is a different conversation than if you're testing, if, if you're struggling with the amount of testing and the rates are still continuing to be relatively high. At some point during the summer, a lot of people are going to want to swim in a lake or a pool. So how risky is that? I have I've been asked variants of lakes and pools questions for a while, so I've been keeping an eye out. I haven't seen any suggestion that the act of swimming confers risk. Um, I think one thing that struck me um, when I was thinking about distancing is that if you're with your own household members, you don't have to distance in the water. If you're with other people, the interactions in the water, especially among kids, might involve a lot of jumping around, popping up in and out of the water and spluttering. I don't know if I like spluttering that much, so I try to reduce reduce that kind of closer contact in a water setting, but the water itself will dilute out um, any you know nasal or saliva-based virus that might be emitted by someone who doesn't know they're sick yet. And, and it's not really spread through like drinking water or anything like that. It really is respiratory in contact. So the act of swimming itself is pretty safe, but the change room situation, the distancing on the beach, concessions, and, and maybe this kind of, if you're popping up out of the water and bluttering into each other's faces might be areas of potential risk. In general, I would consider it probably a low-risk thing to do, though. I think that you'd probably want to think around how you can plan so that you don't have to go into a shared change space. I also worry about sometimes like those little cluster washrooms are pretty nasty. So so you'd have, want to time it and manage it so that the change room time and the concession time and, and um, bathroom time is, is minimized um, and hand hygiene and distancing. The, the weak link is always where people are in a situation of kind of having to congregate more closely. And to be honest, the operators of, of public spaces might have to look at capacity to try to minimize trouble as well. Yeah, and uh, it you know it reminds me uh, it, it you know I guess I guess I'm glad that that I'm a jogger because because I've been jogging alone outdoors throughout the pandemic and you know frankly it's my stress buster. But but what if my kid wants to play basketball or soccer? Yeah, I think the sports issue is actually a pretty thorny one. Um, and there's some things about sports that are a little different because although a lot of them are outdoors, there might be a shared object. So basketball, you're passing things hand to hand. And I think in pretty much all sports, there's there's this element of kind of crashing into each other face to face, um, forceful exhalations, which might be a risk for respiratory droplets. Um, and also some sports are probably spittier than others. Um, and, and I think those things make sports kind of a different category. And so some of the things that have been discussed until we can figure out 
um, more about the transmission risk in team sports would be to like rather than having the full team thing, maybe consider doing drills instead. I certainly have seen people doing kind of pickup sports on the local basketball courts, and I flinch a little bit because I think that it is different than just hanging around outside. I think the contact is closer, and I think that there is potentially more transmission risk if someone is, you know, um, infected and not yet aware of it. So I'm still nervous around sports. I still have a question mark there, and I would try to promote other outdoor activities that are kind of more in parallel rather than in collision, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It makes me wonder, you know, how how the NHL and the NBA and 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 other major league sports are going to are going to get back. But that's that's their problem for the moment, not ours. You you touched on this, but I want to make sure we're really clear about this. Um, you decide you want to visit family out of province. And so you get the fa- you get your own family in the car. That's your own protective bubble, and you drive across uh, the provincial uh, border. You're going to have to be prepared for some serious isolation, won't you? I think for a lot of people, it comes down to especially vulner- uh, visiting elderly family members. So they're the most at risk, and they're also the ones that you know are, are most, um, I think, at risk of isolation, right? Um, so things you can do would be, you know, plan your trip to, to minimize contact along the way at your stops, um, using hygiene and distancing at all the stops. And then when you get there, you have to think about the circumstances where you interact with your relatives, like maximizing the safety by doing more outdoors things and not having big indoor family gatherings and try to minimize your interaction within the community, especially, especially if you're coming from a place that might be a higher risk community setting than the place you're going to. That's where a lot of the guidelines kind of fail because I think these questions are real and they're really important, but you can't answer them all in a guideline and it's hard to make those value judgments. But again, I think people should just have a thought about, well, the what if, what if along the way one of us picked up infection and was incubating it when we went to visit grandma, right? Yeah. I think that that's like the harsh kind of background consideration. And then you say, well, you know what, if we do everything really, really right and we visit outside and we use masks in, in closer face-to-face settings and and we try to just get the most of our visit with the least risk, then then I think it's it's entering the realm of reasonable. But I think the, the first step is to really think through all those aspects of it. Last so I didn't question. answer that question. <laughs> no, you know what you did. You did pretty well because you're you answered it the way as as an infectious disease uh, specialist would would answer it at a time when we don't have all the answers about the coronavirus. <laughs> Last question I'm going to ask you, and I think I know the answer. Uh, I know mosquitoes can potentially carry uh, West Nile, but they can't. They you can't get COVID nineteen from a mosquito bite, can you? No, I mean, there, there's, if, if you look really hard, you can sometimes find um, viral RNA in the blood of people at diff- different phases of infection. But um, mosquitoes actually, the, the diseases they carry actually have a life cycle within the mosquito. And it commonly involves um, amplifying the virus in the mosquito salivary glands. I'm sorry, I'm getting geeky. Um, but basically, there's no mosquito-specific life cycle of these viruses that would make that likely in any way. Nicely said. <laughs> Dr. Lenora Saxinger, thank you so much for speaking with me and answering all of my geeky questions. My pleasure. Always a pleasure to geek out. Uh, okay, stay okay. safe. <laughs> yeah, you stay, yeah, you stay safe too. Have a good okay. day. You too. Bye. Bye. Dr. Lenora Saxinger is an infectious diseases specialist and associate professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Alberta. 
Here's your dose of smart advice on staying safe from COVID-19 while doing summer's outdoor activities. If you want to invite friends and family to your deck, keep the numbers down around five or six guests and keep them well-spaced. Buffets are out. Instead, as much as possible, give guests their own servings of food. Swimming solo or in a small group is probably safe, but avoid splashing around in large groups and consider avoiding public or communal change rooms. Parallel sports are safe, but team sports that involve passing a ball back and forth like a basketball may not be. If you plan on traveling between provinces, be prepared to follow provincial guidelines and self-isolate until it's safe to venture forth. If you like what you heard today, well, we've got more. Tomorrow, you'll find a second episode with Dr. Lenora Saxinger, where she gives more great advice for keeping safe from the coronavirus indoors. And next week on The Dose, we're going to answer the question, is my race a risk factor in the age of COVID-19? If you have any other topics you'd like us to cover, tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBC White Coat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can also email us. Our address is thedose at cbc.ca. You can find The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. The Dose was produced by Nicole Ireland, Donna Dingwall, and me with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Shout out to Alison Broddle, Managing Editor at CBC Radio, Arif Narani, the Executive Producer of CBC Podcasts, and Leslie Merklinger, CBC's Director of Audio Innovation. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. If you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.